Hi, and welcome to our podcast. We're on day four of our Passion Week series, and today's podcast is titled, The Posture of Christ. One of the most intriguing things of this season is when we consider the magnitude and greatness of the one who actually came down to earth to give his life for humanity. And this one is Jesus Christ. It was on Thursday that the disciples and Jesus gathered in that upper room to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And Jesus knew that this would be his last one. The disciples knew that there was something definitely somber about this occasion. Jesus had been telling them that he would be captured, killed, and he would rise again from the dead. But they couldn't understand all of this. Just a few days earlier, he was given the reception of a king as he strode onto the streets of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The disciples couldn't even think that things would take such an ugly turn at the height of his popularity. Surely, this is the time, Jesus, to usher in the kingdom, the disciples would have thought. The great revolution that will throw off the shackles of Roman oppression, crush their leaders and propagators, and let Jesus sit on the throne with his enemies as his footstool. Wouldn't this be a priority? This is what the people wanted. On Palm Sunday, they waved palm branches at Jesus. The palm branches were from the Jewish revolt in 164 BC when Simon and the Maccabees entered Jerusalem. Palm branches were waved. Since that time, palm branches became a national political symbol. So when they did this to Jesus, they were literally asking Jesus to be king and overthrow the Romans. So think about that for a moment. Palm Sunday, height of his popularity, any influence, people asking him to be king as he rode into Jerusalem. This would have been the right time for any leader to hold a meeting to calculate our next move, to chalk out where we are going as an organization and as a movement, to think about how to take our popularity to the next level. And what should have been that kind of a moment ended up being something completely contrary to the disciples' expectations. We're not given a privy into what the conversation was surrounding the table. But the disciples' track record of quality conversation wasn't too good. In Mark 9, we find them arguing over who is the greatest, right after Jesus foretells his own death and resurrection. In Mark 10, we find uh, James and John asking to be seated on the right and left in his glory, in his kingdom. This request comes just after Jesus tells them again of his imminent suffering, death and resurrection. One can only assume what the conversation was like around that Last Supper meal. There was probably an air of pride in the minds of the disciples over the naysayers, the ones who never believed in this rabid bunch. We showed them, didn't we? And this is the only, and this is only the beginning, Peter probably ex- exclaimed. We will keep growing in influence till every one of their mouths are shut. We'll show them, John probably cried out. He wasn't yet the apostle of love that we know him to be, because on their way to Jerusalem, he wanted to call down heavenly fire to burn the Samaritans because they wouldn't give them a favorable reception. There was probably even an air of hatred against their oppressors. Did you see those Roman soldiers just looking at us while we walked into Jerusalem? 
I can't wait to strip them of their power and give them a taste of their own medicine. With our present popularity ratings, this is the right time for Jesus to lead from the front. We didn't come all this way for nothing. And these are just imaginary conversations that we could picture happening around the table as Jesus and the disciples gathered that evening. There is such pressure that comes with leadership. And in today's world, there's definitely a gaping void when it comes to leaders of integrity. With a moral and visionary compass so grounded that they do not shift with the pressures of popular culture and demand. How do we live in a world where authority and love seem to be opposing forces? In a world where political maneuvering, organizational posturing, manipulation, backstabbing, public shaming, communal divides are all part of everyday living. The writer tells us that Jesus knew who he was. He had come from God and was going back to God. He knew what he had. The Father had given all things into his hands. We find this in John 13. He knew his position and authority. He knew he had it all. All things were given to him. What would one do with this kind of authority? In our world, we've learned the art of being politically correct in the front end, but extremely manipulative and self-serving in the back. Just a few years ago, we saw how social media was being used to manipulate public opinion, political opinions. In the front end, everything seemed so good and attractive, but on the back end, there was a, a subtle manipulation going on to sway the minds of people in a particular direction. And this is rapidly being used by political forces, by businesses, to get people's attention towards a particular product or towards a particular person. That's the kind of world we live in. That kind of behavior is expected and even justified at many times. That if you have power, Use it for your own good. Use it to get yourself ahead. But what did Jesus do with a position that could not be surpassed? The highest name, an authority that is ultimate. He resolved to love his disciples to the very end. In the midst of this supper, this atmosphere charged with pride and hatred, division and future possibility, Jesus rises. He was the host. Since he arranged for this meal to be prepared, his instructions were specific about how he wanted it. Take the seating arrangement, for example. In a meal like this, the arrangement would have been around a triclinium table, surrounded by cushions or carpets against which guests would recline with their feet away from the table. The host usually sat second from the left with his closest friend, also known as his right-hand man, on his right, and the guest of honor on his left. From the description in John 13, we understand that Peter was probably seated in the extreme right side because he seems to be motioning with his eyes to John to ask Jesus who would betray him. John, also known as the beloved disciple of Jesus, was seated on his right because the passage describes how he leans against Jesus and asks him who will betray him. 
But who was on Jesus' left? Who was the guest of honor? Jesus told John that the one who will betray him would be the one I give this dipped bread to. And the picture for John would have been appalling because the one he gave the dipped bread to was the one sitting on his left. And that was Judas. John would have been astounded. The guest of honor at this table was the very one who was going to betray him, Judas. And Jesus knew it. Jesus rises from this table, knowing fully well the people who are seated there. He knew them to he he knew them completely. He knew them to the fullest and loved them to the fullest. He takes off his robes and dresses like a slave. For washing the feet was the lowest job. And in this meeting that was supposed to kickstart the revolution of the century, unbeknownst to the disciples at the time was actually the revolution of the ages. And one by one he took their feet and he washed them, even that of his betrayers. For there were two at the table, one Judas and another Peter. All this was known only to Jesus at the time. What was Jesus the Messiah, God in the flesh, trying to show here? After washing their feet, Jesus tells them plainly that the one who is to betray them is at the table with them. He also tells them, now is the Son of Man glorified. In the face of the world's definition of glory, greatness, authority and position, Jesus tells them what glory looks like from God's perspective. God is a servant. God is humble, washing the feet of those who hate him, those who will fail him, and those who do not believe in him. Those who do what he does, share in his glory. With worldly images of glory swirling in our minds, management professionals will even talk hours and hours about this model of leadership exercised by Jesus called servant leadership. But all to what end? Because for the world, servanthood is the roadway to greatness. Other-centeredness is on the front end, but still self-serving on the back end. But in Jesus' teaching, servanthood isn't one of those courses you have to pass on the way to greatness. Servanthood is greatness. It is the perpetual posture of one who belongs to God's kingdom. It is not self-serving. It is self emptying. And here is the lesson to his disciples, to do likewise. And before we walk out the doors thinking, I got this, we have to understand one truth. We cannot have this perspective of dealing with those around us unless we have first understood what it means to be dealt with him in like manner. Meaning, we have to be dealt with in our lives in like manner by God himself. Oftentimes, we react very much like Peter who says, You shall never wash my feet. In other words, I got this God. I will serve people. I heard the message. I saw the example. I can do this. You don't need to do anything for me. I've got everything I need. But the world around me, yeah, they're the ones who need the serving. I'll do my best. And off we go. Jesus wouldn't let Peter take a pass. He even tells him 
that he wouldn't understand what Jesus is doing in that instant. But it isn't rocket science, isn't it? Serve people, isn't that the message? Jesus is asking Peter and us to take a closer look. When a holy God comes into a sinful world and lives among people who are different from him in every way, what is the posture he takes? When God deals with those who are about to betray him, what is the posture he takes? When God deals with those who are talking and scheming behind his back, what is the posture he takes? When opinion polls suggest that this is the best time to strike, to usurp power and lead a revolution, what is the posture he takes? When God deals with those who are struggling in the faith, like you and I often do, what is the posture he takes? When God exercises ultimate authority over us, over his people, over the world, what is the posture he takes? The problem with us is we think this posture is only temporary or it's limited only to those who love us or respect us. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, is our mantra. But what happens when your enemy has an itch? What is our posture? The truth is, the only reference point, the true north that we have in absolutely loving people in a self-emptying way is when we have received that kind of love in Jesus and what he did for us at the cross. He emptied himself in his birth and life and death. He served you and me by giving his life for us. We who are his enemies, those who are so different from him, those who have betrayed him, mocked him, provoked him, how does he deal with us? And if you're like me, you know what it's like to fail God. You know what it's like to fail so miserably and to be so filled with guilt and shame and wondering if there'll be any change. But when Jesus comes to us and as we think about the cross and as we think about him on the day before he gave his life and the posture of Jesus, it gives us a picture. It gives us a window into how God deals with us. He honors us, loves us and serves us by washing our sins away. Unless I wash you, Jesus reminds Peter and us, you have no share with me. By this, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what is the posture of this love? There is a posture in allowing God to serve us, to heal and clean and love and delight in us. That's a posture we need to have forever. Because we never go away from the cross. We, we, we never outgrow or outlast His grace. We always need His grace because we are always on the, on the road to being right with Him. There's never a point in, in, you, in yours and my life where we can say, uh, Jesus, yeah, I've got this. Jesus remembers who we are. And there is a posture that we need to have, a humble posture of allowing God to cleanse us and heal us. But when we go out into the world, there is a posture that we learn from Him, imitating Him to the world around us. 
Here in John 13, we find Jesus floating his posture, the culture of his kingdom in the face of the world's posture, the culture of the kingdoms of this world. And what is our posture as individuals, as families? What is our posture towards our neighbors? What is the posture we're going to take towards our parents, towards those who love us around us, towards people that we don't know? What is our posture towards those who fail us, those who hurt us? We think we know it. But having received the self-emptying love at the cross, the only adequate response and command we have is to live it. And the posture of Christ is the posture of self-emptying love, where he gives up everything he has in order to love and to serve. And that is the posture of Christ.